0: Coming to you from Beaumont, this is your house call. As we lean into the back half of summer, it's time to start thinking about kids, adolescents, and educators heading back to school this fall. The push is on to get students back to in-person schooling, but with so many children yet to be vaccinated and the rise of more transmissible variants, Questions about COVID prevention strategies and the safety of school age kids once again dominate our landscape. Keep it here. We've got your answers on the back-to-school COVID 2021 edition of the House Call Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Beaumont House Call Podcast. I'm Dr. Nick Gilpin. This is our late-summer back-to-school COVID podcast, the 2021 edition. We did a similar podcast almost exactly a year ago that addressed some issues around preventing COVID in schools. Of course, at that time, we didn't have vaccines, and our collective understanding of COVID was considerably less than it is right now. This time, we're taking another shot at it, pun intended, and we have Dr. Bashara Fraz to join us on the podcast. Dr. Fraz is a House Call Podcast veteran. He joined Asha a couple months ago for the Children and COVID Vaccines episode. Dr. Frage is the head of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at Beaumont Children's Hospital in Royal Oak, Michigan. We're going to discuss a handful of key topics around the safe return to school this fall, including vaccination for school-aged children as a key prevention strategy. We'll talk about masking and physical distancing in schools, regardless of vaccination status, and why this is important, despite being somewhat controversial. And we're going to talk about other preventative strategies, such as staying home when sick, testing, contact tracing, hand hygiene and so on. After my conversation with Dr. Fraj, stay tuned for another podcast guest, Sarah Rahner, who will talk with me about the important psychosocial and mental health benefits of getting students back to in-person learning this fall. All right, let's get to it. Thank you for joining me, Bashara. You're welcome, Nick. So Bashara, before we get started, I want to set the stage here. I, I like to do this on these podcasts because some of this information is maybe a little time sensitive, so this is a way for me to, to time stamp the information. Um, we're currently at approximately 5 to 6% COVID test positivity in our community. The CDC considers this moderate community transmission. The Delta variant is the dominant strain nationwide at about 93% of all COVID cases. Young, unvaccinated individuals, average age around 40, is making up the largest proportion of those new cases and hospitalizations. About 71,000 new cases of COVID diagnosed among children in the U.S. in just the last week alone, which is approximately one in five of all new COVID cases. And about 54% of Michigan residents over age 12 are fully vaccinated right now. So with all of that in mind, let's talk, you and me, about what a safe return to school looks like in our community. And uh, I'm going to let you just take it away.
1: So as you lay down the the background here, there's still a lot of disease transmission going on, Mm -hmm. even some breakthrough infections among people who were previously vaccinated. It's a small chunk of people, but nevertheless, they exist. So we still have a long way to go in terms of trying to get to the finish line. But in order to achieve that, we have to uh, all work together to do that. And also uh, in the meantime, trying to protect the kids from all the consequences of the pandemic that are not just health related but psychological issues and Mm -hmm. mental health issues as you will be addressing with your next guest Mm -hmm. um so in order to achieve that as successfully as we can as more and more people get vaccinated and uh, more and more people get naturally infected and we uh, encourage everybody to around these children who cannot yet receive the vaccine, to go ahead and vaccinate themselves. They owe it to themselves, they owe it to their families, they owe it to their children, their neighbors, their parents, to do what they can to minimize transmission. So once uh, it's like uh, the uh, concept of cocooning uh, a child by having everybody around them as protected as possible. So that includes teachers, obviously, and personnel at schools and everybody 12 years of age and older. Then the every other step, all the other layers of uh, social distancing and masking and hand hygiene and uh, all these other items, they all help. None of them is a solution in and of itself, but each one of them on its own contributes towards the ultimate goal of limiting uh, replication of the virus, making people sick and allowing it to generate new variants that are perhaps more difficult for people if, when, they, when they get infected. So we, we need to do everything we can uh, to achieve the final goal. And um, uh, it's, it's a uh, we're all in this together, and we need to do it in a manner that uh, we all can get to the end of this pandemic and move on with our lives.
0: Let's talk about vaccines because I, I think you mentioned that you alluded to it, and I agree. This is a, a keystone of our strategy. So, um, question: a question I get, a question I'm sure you get when it comes to vaccinating our students, uh, school-age children, is one vaccine, in your opinion, better or safer than another?
1: So, right now, the only vaccine that has received the emergency use authorization really is the uh, Pfizer vaccine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the Moderna vaccine is pretty comparable. But they are a little behind the, the Pfizer group in terms of getting the, the regulatory clearances to use the vaccine. I think once it becomes available, uh, I don't really see one being superior to the other, even though they have not been necessarily compared
0: head to head. Do you have an expectation or, or, or a best guess as to when we might expect vaccines to be available for the under 12 uh, age group? For
1: the 5 to, uh, I guess, 6 to 11, the Pfizer expects to have the data finished by the end of September.
2: Okay.
1: And they'll submit it to the FDA in October. And the expectation is it will move quickly through committee, you know, barring any, any surprises or problems. And then and then it'll be uh, granted the emergency use authorization, like the adult vaccines. So theoretically, October, maybe November. Uh, The only problem I foresee with this is the vaccine for these younger kids uh, is not the same vaccine we use in adults. It's the same product, but if the dosing is much lower, the 6 to 11-year-olds are going to get about a third of the dose the uh, older kids and adults are getting. So that will require new packaging and formulation and delivery of products. So I, I think these things will add to uh, the timeline, uh, assuming everything else is in line, and then for the younger kids, the ones that are uh, like six months of age and older the the expectation is maybe by the end of 2020 uh, that their data will be finished and uh, be ready to perhaps roll it roll it out this this is my understanding
0: so perhaps by the by the latter half of the school year after yes after the my, New
1: year. my yes, if everything goes well, I think. Uh, For the winter term, we may have what we need to to finish the job, you know, in terms of protecting the younger
0: ones. Yeah, I I like that. I like that approach. I think that you could certainly make a case, whether you or I agree with it, uh, I think they probably want to avoid any perception of rushing. Because I think that's been one of the biggest complaints that I've heard about this entire process is it's been a rush. Again, whether you or I agree with that. In in concept, uh, I just I get the feeling that both the vaccine manufacturers, those that are conducting the clinical trials and the FDA want to really avoid that perception.
1: Early on, before the vaccine was given authorization, I had that concern myself. Mm -hmm. You know, is this being rushed to market? Uh, But realistically, uh, even though the vaccine was rolled out back in December, we are eight months out now from the time the vaccine was rolled out. This is actually a lot of additional follow-up in terms of how effective it is, hidden adverse effects that nobody suspected, the number of people who have gotten it, as you uh, stated, is uh, over 50% of the eligible population. Now, granted, they were all vaccinated at different points in time, but you have a huge cohort that exceeds any study that would have ever been done and, uh, and the data are still very, very good. You know, There's like no real hidden long-term problems from the vaccine. Uh, the, the protection, there is a debate on how long it lasts. Uh, but overall, uh, you, you can see that from the data in the states where there is a lot of uh, disease uh, that uh, the ones who are getting hospitalized are the unvaccinated. Uh, the ones who are getting in ICUs are the unvaccinated. The ones who are vaccinated uh, tend to have milder disease if they get it and uh, they are not the ones getting in massive trouble with the infection
0: the way it was a year ago for everybody. Absolutely. You you mentioned layers, and I want to go through some of those layers as we talk about this idea of a safe return to school. And and one of the things that you mentioned was the masking and physical distancing, which has become a a contentious issue, unfortunately. Let's talk about that. And why that's important, even for those vaccinated students right now, given what's going on in our communities with rising rates of COVID, why is it important that even the vaccinated students should be wearing masks?
1: Yes. So if you are a fully vaccinated uh, individual, whether you are an adolescent or, you know, an adult, the, the vaccine provides you uh, the, the protection from infection is about 80 percent. So you're 80 you're percent less likely to get infected if exposed. And among those who do get infected, they tend to have milder disease. The problem with the milder disease or the asymptomatic infection is the virus is allowed to replicate. Mm -hmm. And uh, the driver of all these variants and variant formation with all these uh, Greek letters, whether it's delta and lambda and whatever is coming down the pike, these things will not emerge if the virus is not multiplying and allowed to come up with new versions of itself itself. And uh, so it is important to stop it in its track everywhere possible. If there is no replication, there is no variant formation. I mean, that really, to me, is the, should be the driver of everything. Uh, so even if the masks are controversial, they're uncomfortable, they're not perfect, they have their own problems, they do help. They do. I mean, there's a lot of studies that show uh, decreased transmission, uh, especially in the days before we had even the vaccine to work with. Uh, They are by no means ironclad wall, but uh, they do reduce transmission. And every case we can prevent is one less chance of having a variant emerge that is potentially detrimental, maybe even worse than the Delta variant we're dealing with right now.
0: As we go through um, the, the CDC's playbook that I have here of sort of their approach to safe back to school, one of the things that they talk about is screening tests, particularly for those students and staff who are unvaccinated. Um, talk a little bit about that. What, what is your thought about utilizing screening tests in students and staff Um, And contrast a little bit the difference between a screening test versus a targeted test for someone who may have been exposed or may be symptomatic.
1: Well, screening tests would mean uh, you just uh, sample people, uh, whether they're symptomatic or not. And, um, you know, and that I personally, uh, that's my personal opinion. You Mm -hmm. know, I, I don't speak for the CDC or anybody except myself. Implementing screening for all these children and staff on a regular basis is not going to. It's tricky. Go very well, okay. I, I yep. think it's it's going to be a dead end hmm. pretty fast. Uh, it's uncomfortable to get those swabs. It is costly. Uh, a lot of people. I mean, you have to pay for it out of your pocket or insurance. And if you have to do it on a regular basis, it's uh, it's it adds up. You know, it adds up quite a bit that's different than an exposure. Uh, and uh, maybe you're trying to make sure you didn't get infected. Uh, there was a problem in the class where you're trying to do basically contact tracing and uh, making sure everybody who got infected uh, quarantines so they don't spread it to others. That's mitigation. You know, you're know, you trying to mitigate the effect of what happened. Uh, but in terms of just general screening, I I don't find that all that useful prevention through masking and vaccination and hand washing and uh, distancing as much as possible is a much more effective uh, approach, uh, more practical approach.
0: No, I I like that answer, Bashar, and I I agree with you. I think when you, you know, when we look at these recommendations academically, it may make sense, right, to, to screen regularly, to have an understanding of what your prevalence is at a given time but I think you're absolutely right. It's it's practically very difficult. It's operationally very difficult. It's costly. Schools may not have access to those resources. One place where I have seen screening testing used a little bit more wholesale and, and fairly effectively, I might add, is in sports and extracurricular activities.
1: Yes, that I agree with you, but that's targeted screening yeah. because you don't want to mess up somebody's season. You don't want to uh, infect others. Like if you're playing football, you know, you're you know, coming face to face with people, you're yelling and screaming and, and, uh, <laughs> tackling people. And, if, uh, if yeah, you're doing that it right, makes yeah. a little more sense, but just, uh, random people, uh, couch potatoes, uh, like me, people <laughs> like that, that
0: doesn't make sense. No, fa- fair point. So I'm going to keep sort of moving through some of these other things that we, um, that I'm sure you're very familiar with and support. Uh, the CDC talks about good hand hygiene. I think no controversy there. Um, they, they also talk about using well-ventilated spaces and outdoor spaces if possible, which some places may have the luxury of doing uh, if they have better weather than we do in Michigan. Um, and, and then another one that, that I, I want to key in on is this idea of staying home if you're sick uh, and obviously getting tested if you do have symptoms. I think this is something historically, Bashar, that we as a society have done a pretty lousy job of. Um, staying home if you're sick, and, and really sort of setting that uh, that example of, of, of not being afraid to stay home. I mean, I think we're kind of a play through the pain society, if I'm being honest with you. What, what are your thoughts?
1: No, I completely agree with you, even though I think the people's philosophy is beginning to maybe shift. They're beginning to see that this is not a good good approach. This idea of staying uh, home and not exposing your uh, classmates or colleagues you know, applies to influenza and RSV and a whole slew of respiratory viruses, which also cause problems for a lot of people in any given year. I mean, they're like massive problems every year for the the population. So I think in terms of uh, doing that, uh, it's always a good idea You know, the the culture here has always been, you know, like you said, uh, uh, you know, play through the pain. Uh, But I I really feel that people are beginning to see the the, that this is not a wise way to conduct life. Now, we do have different uh, venues now where like in the past, there was no virtual classes. You couldn't do online learning. Right uh so if you didn't go to school you know you lost out a lot if you didn't show up to work there's plenty of workers they'll get rid of you you know things like that but i think this is all uh, you know the change has been forced on people and i think in one way this is one of the better things that have come out of living through this pandemic which is to uh, start wondering whether this we're being smart about things uh so i think right now if you're a student uh you can uh, you know st- even if you're doing in-person classes they're they're keeping the online portions of the teaching you know because they also need that for some kids who cannot come or people who get sick so you can keep up with your with your homework with your demands without necessarily having to show up in person and uh and then you can you know Keep, keep going, not fall behind very quickly. And it will be just a temporary period of time till you recover from whatever you're going through. And then you can go back to joining your classmates or teammates or, uh, you know, whoever you wish to join. Sure.
0: Another one of the strategies that the CDC talks about and, and other organizations talk about is cleaning and disinfection, which is something we've sort of come full circle on uh, throughout the COVID experience and, and the importance or relative lack of importance of what cleaning and disinfection might actually mean Um, what is your opinion on how often cleaning should be done in schools and um and and what exactly should these schools be focusing on during their cleaning and disinfection process
1: well you know the the cleaning and disinfection will uh, will work uh to get rid of what exists on the surfaces and uh, 10 minutes later, you know, you could be back to where you were uh, uh, before the cleaning. So I think uh, keeping things clean in principle is always a plus. Uh, uh, being uh, obsessive compulsive about it is neither practical nor logical. And even all of these uh cleaners, uh, you know, uh, if you use too much of it, uh, there are some environmental impacts on those. I mean, you can smell the cleaners, you know, they, they can irritate people. Uh, so I um, I don't think this is, again, I, I'm, I'm all for it. Uh, I just don't think it does much. It doesn't do nearly as much as uh, masking, for example. Masking will be way more effective in reducing transmission. And
0: hand hygiene, uh, of course. Uh,
1: hand washing, absolutely. Yep. I mean, it's a good idea period, you know, not just for COVID, but for pretty much, uh, uh anything you want. Uh, so I, I think it's always a, a, good thing to do. Um, but the cleaning the surfaces, um, uh, uh, I, I, think is not gonna, uh, put a big dent in anything.
0: Curious to get your thoughts on this since you mentioned masking again, and, and I think that's one of the areas where I'm getting the most questions certainly around masking. Um, so I'm sure you've had this one before, uh, a parent says, "You know, uh, Doctor Fraj, my 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 kid's school is not requiring masking, um, but I really want my kid to wear a mask. You know, talk me through that. Uh, walk me through how your approach to this, and and what should I be telling my student, and uh, you know, how should we be having that conversation?"
1: Well, I think uh, uh, we lead by example, uh, and I think uh, parents uh, who who believe in the importance of masking should. Uh, should educate their kids about its importance. They should model the behavior so that they do it themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think uh, the it's, the onus is on the teachers to make sure that kids who choose to uh, mask don't get uh, bullied or harassed or uh, messed with uh, by others who uh, may be uh, coming from households that uh, are maybe more negative about about this thing uh i mean once you send your kid to school it's kind of out of your hands uh, what happens but kids will do it i mean i i uh, you know i uh, at the beginning of this pandemic with all the masking and all the stuff i really was not sure how the younger kids uh, will handle it but in my office i'll tell you they are very good about it the kids uh, they will keep the mask on and even when you want to examine their throat they they use it to shield themselves from you because now it's like it's covered, like like leave me alone kind of thing. Uh, but they keep it and they don't, you know. So uh, even kids, I mean, I take care of a lot of kids who have uh, uh, developmental problems, uh, 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 cerebral palsy, uh, Down syndrome, autism, and they keep the masks on. Uh, they, they do. Uh, so I don't think it's as difficult as I thought it would be a year ago or a year and a half ago, I, I'm very pleasantly surprised and uh, very glad I was uh, mistaken, you know, in my thinking that they would not do well with it. Uh, but I think you, uh, you, know, you should teach your kids to do that until we're done. And it protects them not just from COVID, but it will protect them from other respiratory viruses as well, and, um, and um, uh, not perfectly, but uh, it will be positive nevertheless.
0: Good answer. So, uh Bashara, with all these strategies in play to to get back to safe in-person learning, um, one question is, is there still a role for closing schools and and what might that look like if we have if things get weird again as I like to say?
1: I don't see ourselves as getting back to last year, uh, but I do see, you know, you might have to like shut down some class for a little while or things like that. That probably will happen here and there, but I just do not see it. Even now with the, with the increase uh, in, in activity of the virus in our area, as an example, we are nowhere near last year's numbers, you know, so, uh, so the, the, and it's a reflection of, uh, you know, we have a, a, a a virus that spreads more easily and yet the numbers are not as uh as uh as dramatic as a year ago and uh, you know a lot of it is you know there's a good chunk of people who are immune now you know yeah. to to this and they will interrupt transmission but we are not done you know and if we don't control it we may lose all the gains we've we've made you know and that's what we have to try to avoid and people have to understand everybody's tired of talking about the disease, yeah. the infection, the masking, the social distancing. So, if 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 people are as tired of hearing about it and dealing with it as as healthcare workers and uh, you know uh, a lot of the population, then do something about it. Help us get to the end of the of get through the finish line uh, by trying to uh, uh, you know prevent the virus from multiplying get vaccinated, use the mask, wash your hands, distance as much as possible, and we can see the finish line then at some point.
0: Well said, Dr. Frazier. I'll leave it there. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. And now we're gonna pivot to part two of our podcast. This part of the podcast will explore the psychosocial and behavioral aspects of why it's important to get students back to in-person learning. And our guest for this segment is Sarah Rahner. Sarah is a pediatric nurse practitioner at Beaumont. Uh, She's contributed extensively on this topic, including through local television and media outlets. Uh, Thank you for taking time to join me today, Sarah.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: So, Sarah, my my last guest uh, and I just discussed the latest recommendations for what a safe return to in-person school this fall might look like talked about vaccinations and other preventative strategies. These recommendations from the CDC, the WHO, and and the American Academy of Pediatrics are very tightly linked to the concept of child and adolescent development and well-being, which is something I know that you've spoken quite a bit about. So talk for for just a moment on why this push for in-person learning is so important for students.
2: So it's a really great question, Um, and one we've been getting a lot lately in pediatrics, and it's the question of are we going to go back or are we not? And I think there's three major pointers that need to be brought forward to talk about. We have academic development, social development, and then the physical health and nutrition. So when we dial down a little bit to that, the academic development studies have shown us that math and reading scores suffer for students doing virtual versus in-person learning. Hmm. And I think two of the big reasons for that is it's a question and answer session in learning when you're a child. you got to be able to ask the question and get an answer. And a lot of kids just simply won't do that in virtual learning. Yeah. And when you're learning, you're also learning dynamically. So things change. You learn off of what the person next to you is asking, what the person next to you is learning. And I think you lose that with this virtual learning session. So not only is it academic development and pushing them forward to the next level, but it's the social development too. So the importance of having a routine. And I've spoken on this many, many, many times. I think our our first thing as parents was to let kids just be themselves and live with the pandemic and now we have to we have to get it back and we have to get them back on a routine um, for so many reasons um but it's social development so it's routine it's having social interactions with other students and other teachers which are adults that aren't their parents which is a huge one and emotional intelligence so it's problem solving It's creating social bonds that aren't there when you're on a classroom, having ninth graders walk into high school and not walking in a door, but walking into their bedroom or their office or wherever they're taking virtual learning and not knowing a soul in any one of the classes and looking at these screens full of either names or faces that they don't recognize. It makes them feel alone, isolated. And then simply the physical education and health. A lot of these kids in so many communities rely on just simply food from school. You get breakfast, you get lunch, and you get a snack. Mm -hmm. Whereas other kids just don't get that or they get very unhealthy foods. And then the physical education piece, it's moving from class to class. It's not just the physical education of having a gym, but it's getting up out of your room, out of your house, walking to the bus, walking in with your being dropped off, and then simply walking from class to class. We lost all of that in virtual learning.
0: Absolutely. I think we could certainly agree that there might be circumstances or situations where a school would have to shut down for a period of time if there's an extensive outbreak in the school or in the community. But I think these overlong shutdowns have, have really been detrimental. And, and one of the things that I've seen and read about extensively is this idea of sort of a pulling apart uh, of sort of this social vulnerability. You know, you've got, uh, frankly, the haves and the have-nots, and and you're seeing more and more distance between these populations. So if you could talk for a minute about how this is particularly important for systemically neglected populations and how the absence of in-person schooling is contributing to some of those gaps.
2: Sure. The, um, The Economic Policy Institute found that the pandemic widened the gap that put the low income students at a disadvantage relative to their better off peers, which basically means a lot of kids just simply don't have devices, they don't have internet access, or if they do, it's very limited or very slow. Um, They don't have the specialized instruction that comes with it as well, like tutors and teachers that you can go to on your off hours or after school or before school. And with slower online learning and less availability of devices, um, you learn you lose all that online learning modules that the teachers are able to put together so they can put together a wonderful learning platform for these kids. But if they're out of school for extended periods of time, they're not building on that academic development, which is what's so important for them. So the underserved are becoming more Dramatic, or I should say they're becoming dramatically separated from those that are, are more served. Right. They have the better computers. They have the quicker Wi-Fi. They have all of those types of things. And in general, you know, the big gap used just to be in like a lot of times just in nutrition. Now we're finding it more and more in the actual academic learning and retention um, that there's a big gap. Speaking of nutrition for just a second, too, you have these kids that uh, a lot of times are in, you know, underserved populations where the parents may not have the financial means to provide them with three balanced meals a day. Right. Where a lot of times they were getting, you know, fast food or convenience food because it's cheaper and it fills them up. Uh, going to school, they get a breakfast, lunch, and um, most of the time a snack, you know, backpacks. Sent home with kids full of cereal and bars and things that they can eat that are more healthy, we lost the ability to have that when we started with this this virtual learning so not only are they not getting the the um, educational platform they 're now not getting the nutrition that they need to feed their their bodies, their brains their development to push them forward in this educational gap
0: yeah and I'm, what i 'm seeing as I read some of these recommendations from the CDC and other organizations is that keyword equity keeps getting used over and over again. It's about equity. And you know we're, we have the tools to provide safe in-person learning, and it's not only important for the students emotionally, it's important for this concept of equity. Follow-up question, Sarah. Um, I know you work in a pediatrics clinic. Have you seen examples of where students have directly suffered uh, as a result of not having in-person schooling? And what does that look like?
2: So I think um, I can give you three particular examples in general. One of them is the lack of physical education that we've talked about. Mm -hmm. We have seen a dramatic increase in children's body mass index or BMI number, which then in turn puts them at risk for stroke, heart attack, um, things later on in life that these things are reversible. If we can get a handle on these and create a better routine and get them to be where they were before, we can absolutely put these kids in a healthier situation moving forward as an adult. So I think BMI is one of them. Um, parents child relationships, I do think is another thing that not in all circumstances, but in some circumstances, I, I took care of a kid who, um, you know, I talked to the parents and the kids together and I like to talk to the kids separately if the parents allow it. And I could just tell that there was a lot of anger in this room. You could just hmm. feel it the way the conversation was going. And the second I got the parents out of the room, the child just broke down in tears hmm. And this is a teenager. And I'm just like, okay, let's, let's get it out. Let's, let's cry it out. What's going on, but you're not telling me something, you know, and the poor child looks at me and says, I just absolutely think my parents think I'm a failure. I don't have the energy to get up. I don't want to get up. I'm so anxious that I'm going to get COVID, but yet I'm so sad that I don't want to clean my room and I don't want to help my parents that I just feel like a complete and utter failure. So I just, I'm watching in front of me the unfolding of this poor 17-year-old who is just lost in all of this. And the parents are upset because they're not picking up their room and she can't pick up her room because she's flat out clinically depressed. So those types of things, when you put people in a situation where they're together 24-7, it changes your expectations of each other, and I think it changes your relationship. So I think people need to be very aware of what's going on in the home at that time. Thankfully, I was able to get some follow-up on, on her in and counseling and with some medication. They're doing a lot better now, um, but it's a long road ahead of them, and one of their biggest fears was, what if this happens again? And my statement to them was, well, you know what? We know what we're dealing with. Let's see if we can stop it before it starts again. And then the third one is um, kids I hear over and over are getting, they feel like they're lost in the computers. If they are there, they feel like they're in a screen of people that they're not getting that social connection. And with that social connection, like you don't have the, I want to do better than he did or caring so much about their grades or, well, all I got to do is pass, right? That's all I'm worried about. You know, all I got to do is I have to do just good enough to get (laughs) by this semester. Um, so I think those are three of the biggest reasons. Um, one thing that I don't think we've talked enough about as well is lack of access for things like ABA therapy in our autistic population, speech therapy in our kids. You know, the thought of doing speech therapy with masks in person is very hard. And to get some of these kids who are, you know, have educational challenges or, or emotional challenges to watch you on a Zoom and try to learn are, is hard. So all of those therapies that kids need that are in person, you know, those are the ones that my heart goes out to those families because they strive on that routine of being able to go to school, be, being able to learn, and that routine of doing it over and over and over again.
0: You know, it, it's it's interesting because we are sort of doing this real-time risk-benefit analysis always. And, and I want to stick with something that you just said a moment ago, and I want to talk a little bit about resiliency because you're right. I don't think any of us knows with certainty what the next several months are going to look like. It could be a bumpy road. We could have shutdowns again. We could have schools closing down, like I alluded to earlier, uh, because of outbreaks. And so how can parents help demonstrate this idea of rolling with the punches? You know, there's a lot of uncertainty out there right now. Things might get weird again. Talk me through that a little bit.
2: One of the big things as parents that we have to do is, number one, we have to keep our children on a routine. I think the fact that if they go to bed at the same time at night, if they get up at the same time in the morning, they're eating breakfast, whether they're going to school or not, they can't have school if it does get shut down from their bedroom. You have to get up, move out, go walk the dog in the morning, go walk anyone in the morning, just get out and move first. So if you can mimic that routine that they're doing at school, at home, that will benefit them. But I also think as parents, we sometimes have to take a step back and say, I have to do that too. Like I need to take my mental break as well. I need to make sure that I'm going to bed at a good time. I'm eating well, I'm exercising, I'm moving my body every day and I'm being a good example for my children too. And then role play some of it. Say, okay, what are you most worried about going into day one of school? Like, let's talk about it. Let's say, okay, I'm worried about, you know, am I gonna make new friends? And my biggest conversation is we're all in this together. So if something comes up, Let's talk about some techniques that we can give you to work through these things. Things as simple as counting backwards from three or counting forwards to 10. Um, one that I really like because we're trying to ignite other senses is something that you can see, something you can smell, something you can touch. Like start working on those other senses in the moment so that you can then reduce your anxiety and press forward with change. Because any, any kind of change, whether it's good change or bad change, allows those anxious feelings to come in.
0: I like that. So I think this is a good place to kind of to, to, to wrap things a little bit. And I want to finish this on a positive note. This has been a really good conversation. The pandemic has been for us all, you, me, for the students, uh, for our patients. It's been a physically and emotionally draining experience, um, certainly for our, our healthcare community as well. But we have the tools now, I think, to make in-person learning a success. I think we're better situated today than we were a year ago. We have vaccines available. We have better treatment protocols, uh, You know, more, more safety protocols in place. The CDC, the WHO, other professional organizations um, have given us this nice roadmap, a science-based roadmap uh, for, help, uh, for helping to get our kids back to school safely. There's a lot of federal monies out there that have been devoted to making sure that that in-person school can be a success um, and to help close some of those opportunity gaps that we talked about earlier. And we've learned a lot from our collective experience, from our successes and our failures in this space. And and we know how high the stakes are to ensuring safe learning. So um, I'm really optimistic about the coming school year. Sarah, final thoughts, things you want to add?
2: I agree. I am optimistic as well. Um, I think that we do have the tools. I think we just have to use them right. Um, And I think we also have to reserve judgment on people that are making their own choices. Um, You know, I've talked a lot to my kids about mask wearing and, you know, social distancing and trying to find a normal right now that works for us. Um, You know, having a conversation on a daily basis and just having a touch point every day. Hey, doing okay? Need anything? What can we talk about? And I think. As a group and as a society, we, we have the resources. We just need to use them the right way.
0: Well said. Let's leave it there. Big thanks to Sarah Rahner for joining me today. Thank you, Sarah.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: And I also would like to thank Dr. Frage again for joining us on the podcast. I want to remind you to send along any questions or suggestions to podcast at beaumont.org. And for more information on COVID-19, please go to beaumont.org slash coronavirus. And I'll leave you today with this healthy thought. Conducting school in person is tremendously beneficial for students and their families, and getting back to learning in person is a high priority for our communities this fall. By getting as many students who are eligible vaccinated, paying attention to the community rates of transmission, and practicing other COVID prevention strategies like masking, physical distancing, and testing, we can help ensure our communities a safe, healthy, and productive school year. Continue your journey to living a smarter, healthier life. Visit beaumont.org slash podcast to access information and resources related to today's podcast.